Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Akhil Patel from propertysharemarketeconomics.com. Please note that some of the links we've included in the show are affiliate links. We thought this might be a nice way to support the channel without actually interrupting with marketing or any other adverts. And we hope to have the merchandise available soon. But I can't tell you exactly when because I'm too busy. But we will do it. So on with the show. Akil Patel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's always a pleasure. So since we last spoke, what do you think of the markets at this point in time? Are they going to continue higher in line with inflation, with the pressure that's building up? Or is there anything in the cycle analysis that suggests that the market's going to have an interim correction, especially given that we're in the October month, which is traditionally bad for stocks? Um, I mean, it's it's a good question. I put out an annual forecast each year for my subscribers um, and I was expecting a correction this year um, actually into September uh, using kind of various cycles and other things and so I'm a bit you know I'm a bit stuck I have to admit um, because we've not really had much of a correction I know the at least I mean and I base my cycles analysis off the US markets because I have the longest data for that for those um, and you know, they've not really come down. They've had a bit of a four to six week retracement in some of the indices uh, since um, kind of late summer. And so I'm now wondering if uh, if that's it. It looks like markets might be turning up again. Um, I use various other indices to try and get a gauge on what the US might do. And, um, so I think probably at worst we'll be sideways to the end of the year, but probably more likely we'll continue up. It's actually quite funny because I, I see the same thing. Um, I, I, I saw some topping patterns in the equity markets that, and the VIX index gave an indication that things were going to come back down again. And it looked like we were gearing up for a bigger move because the NASDAQ had fallen, tech stocks were falling, and the traditionally strong markets like the Swiss stock market was falling. And so everything that had been kind of rock solid and leading the way up had started to turn down. And... So it was building up and then all of a sudden the markets have like in the last few days have bounced extremely hard. It's almost as though there's been this uh the action so, of the plunge protection team. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like oh let's turn that tap on again and everything's going seems to be going back up again. But I, I, I look at the FTSE as well. So I'm guessing that your view of the FTSE is that that might be one that's leading the way up because that doesn't look bearish, but the other uh, European stock markets do, or at least look more bearish. So there's, we are. I, I share exactly your sentiment about not being sure whether this is something that's going to get bigger in terms of a correction. But it does. We have to leave the door open for another leg up because it's certainly been a very muted correction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't follow the European indices as closely as the FTSE and the US and the Nikkei and. Um, I sort of have half an eye on what's going on in China, but it's only because not not because the Chinese markets are particularly integrated, um, other than you know, arguably Hong Kong, but because the Chinese economy is is so vast and you know there's so many rumours running around about what's going on there because no one really knows because they don't publish any proper data. Um, 
that uh, I I kind of I kind of feel that I, the way that I think about it is the markets are probably pricing in some positive news to come. I don't know if that's the sort of another infrastructure spending package in the US or it's just kind of reopening or or a rotation into sectors that have been hammered over the last 18 months. Um, but it seems to be that but we've had we've had the correction that I was expecting this year uh, has already happened. Having said that, I mean, the first couple of years out of uh, the mid-cycle recession, of course, um, we've spoken about my kind of worldview based upon 18-year real estate and economic cycles. Uh, and in the middle of it, we always have the mid-cycle recession. That was uh, last year. It was, in, in you know, despite all the sort of sound and fury around it, it's possibly the shortest recession in US history. Four months, I think, is the official dating by the National Bureau for Economic Research. Um, and as economies turn around after that, markets tend to be historically a bit a bit funny. It's a bit hard to get a read on them um, in the first sort of year or so after the recession ends. And then you tend to get the second half expansion, which usually means a pretty bullish stock market. Well, I have a question, which is, should we be looking at stocks in isolation or should we, we be looking at interest rates for a, a lead on the stock market? Because I don't see how if 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 the bond market were to collapse as it logically ought to, given the money printing and the, the, the fact that the central banks have paid themselves into a corner and they can't basically do anything on rates, they can't lower them, and they can't raise them. I don't see how the, the, the stock market can ultimately shrug off a collapsing bond market. But is that just overly simplistic on my part? Uh, no, but so the way that I think about the bond market, um, and you know, I'm not a, I, I never was a bond salesman like you were, so you probably know a lot more about how these things work than I do. But um, the way that I look at them is the is it what the really key thing for the stock market is availability of credit. Yeah. Um, and I think we are coming out of a period of about ten years where the banks were really quite unwilling to lend to businesses um mm. i mean other than maybe for, for pretty large companies and pretty silly things like buying back shares mm. um or offloading uh you know real estate portfolios and that sort of thing um i suspect that that period is now over i think banks will have taken the experience of the mid-cycle recession as they always do and say well we you know all these restrictions that we had in the imposed after the last financial crisis um, have worked. We're resilient. We pass all our stress tests, and we've got enough capital, and you know all the kind of stories that are propagated um, by the banking sector to show that they're in rude health. Uh, actually, changes the narrative uh, and also changes their practices. And so, I suspect what will happen is that um, bank credit will be much more of a factor in relation to business growth than it has been over the last few years. And that offsets, you know, so increasing bank competition, for example, uh, reduces margins, uh, which offsets uh, a rise in uh, underlying interest rates, which I do expect to happen. Maybe not uh, a wholesale spike in interest rates like some people are predicting, but uh, I certainly think there will be uh, generally rising rates over the next few years. So to just to leap on that point, then on a separate, much more narrow issue, um, would you own bank stocks? Because I can't see any reason on earth to own these things now, given the rise of crypto and, as you said, the, com the competition forces that are gathering. 
uh, right, but they have plenty of lending to do, and most of it goes into real estate in the second half of the cycle. Uh, and so, whatever wh- whatever organisations are providing that uh, lending into the real estate market is where I would put it. And I right. think, to be honest, um, as as important as crypto is, uh, it's still relatively small compared to the you know residential real estate market across the world. Sure. Uh, and so, there's plenty of space for 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 so to coexist for the time being, anyway. Yeah, exactly. It, it seems absolutely extra. First of all. One of your calls being that the during the coronavirus uh, correction, market correction, um, that the market would go up was an extraordinary call. And then I think it's another extraordinary call to say that this this real estate move, which for me seems to have been going on apart from some interruptions since forever, forever <laughs> is actually just going to get going. I mean, what an amazing call. And, 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 but everything you're saying since we spoke has actually been completely borne out because the equi- the uh, real estate market has been hitting a new high. And despite all the fears about whether renters would be able to pay their money, pay their rent, um, whether, whether they would have support from the government, whether that gets taken away and whether it would create a correction. None of that has come to pass, despite the really poor economic conditions um, underlying and the, the situation with these people. It's just I, it's a phenomenal call. So to think that it will continue is, is just a, a, in, incredible. So you, you obviously have a lot of faith in, in, in your cycle analysis. And of course, nobody's got the monopoly on, on being wrong. So occasionally, we will get things wrong. Everybody has to, mm. but not so far. Seems to be getting it all right. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, you know, we all get plenty of things wrong, and I'm, I'm, you know, certainly one of them. Let's. I mean, let's just break down what you've just said. So, the the idea that property prices are high. I mean, it's, I mean, it's obvious. I mean, of course, it's you know, most of what we do is pay interest to the bank or pay rent to the landlord. Um. But this isn't the first period in history where we've felt property prices are high. And if you go back over newspaper sort of articles in the late 90s, I mean, you have the same sorts of issues, you know, first time buyers panicking because the property market seems to be getting further and further away, et cetera. I'm sure if we did went into, you know, to the kind of late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, you'd have the same kinds of sentiments. Um, I mean, I think it's probably this, this post Second World War period is probably the first in history where the idea of being a property owning um democracy was really the the rage um you know prior to 1929 which is the peak of that cycle comparatively fewer people actually own their properties outright though probably the 20s boom was the first time that it sort of really started to be part of people's understanding of the good life as it were um that i think that's the first point to make the second is it's not the case that every and and this is the problem with kind of collapsing the real estate market into indices is that you know you're combining um you know houses in the center of london with apartments elsewhere and with houses in sunderland and inverness and and so on and and very different markets yeah and what you tend to find is that in the first half of each real estate cycle prices in the center and i think i've made this point on a previous episode um, prices at the centre tend to go first, and then for the second half, at least in percentage terms, uh, they don't appreciate as much. What you tend to find is that real estate construction and interest ripples out to adjacent areas, to new cities, wherever government is putting in infrastructure, 
there's you know um uh, uh quite a lot of political consideration at the moment for leveling up i mean gordon brown had something similar in in the 2000s they they recognize that there is increasing disparity between the center of the country and and the regions and they put in place investment to try and correct that and what that tends to mean is that there's much more speculation in real estate in regional areas and of course that then makes the indices look uh, strong whereas probably the percentage gains in london will be outstripped by percentage gains in in you know in edinburgh and in the northwest of england the northeast and in northern ireland and in wales over the coming years so we're in that second phase basically where yeah london's gone in simple terms everything else outside now it's it's like there's no the the value in london has been had and it's just spreading out to all the other areas where there's like oh this hasn't gone yet let's let's buy so and, and you get more for your money as well uh, absolutely and that's you know that's what people are looking for i mean i'm not saying that the london market's going to collapse or anything no. it'll go up it just won't go up by as much i mean you know i if i had some spare capital and i knew the market i'd probably be looking at northern ireland at the moment um uh, just because you know it potentially has quite a favorable location being simultaneously in two larger markets uh, and a lot of businesses looking to relocate uh, out there uh, to take advantage of that northern ireland right interesting so I, I see this as very much in a very similar way as to uh, and and we can come back to this perhaps uh, that the, the the way that the cryptocurrencies are working at the moment and you've seen mm. Bitcoin and it's going to be around sixty thousand uh, dollars it's around sixty thousand dollars at the moment and it may double from here to one hundred twenty thousand dollars but actually there is a, there's a lot of other technologies that I've been doing more research on that are much smaller that could treble quadruple. 10x more that are, will now filter down because because the main one is already gone you, you you know even if it doubles it's it's like it's not such a big gain compared to what you can what can be possibly made in these other technologies so we've got this 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 bull market that kind of ripples out now you you've explained it with with real estate but i guess this applies to you know, lots of different markets as well, but you're, you're, you're mainly concentrated on real, real estate, aren't you? Well, the, the real estate market drives the cycle because land is our most important asset. Um, urban land is by far the most valuable. Uh, so, so, and it's the one that draws in the most bank credit uh, and it draws in the most speculation. And, um, you know, when, when prices rise and rents increase, it squeezes, you know, business profits and household budgets the most uh, and so then when you get uh, a speculative orgy in the sort of you know banks uh, balance sheets are leveraged to rising prices and uh, and people are over leveraged themselves in terms of speculating and property that's when you get the grounds for a, a major sort of correction and when you have the correction you get a banking crisis and then financial crisis and businesses fail and so on so this is why it's why real estate is the market why it drives the economic cycle um, within the context of each real estate cycle, because, you know, at least at the start of the really kind of speculative phase, which is part that we're entering now, which lasts five or six or seven years, um, you know, businesses are growing, people are spending more money, so demand is up, um, people are recycling surpluses into other assets, and of course, crypto, you know, 2x on a for a crypto investment sounds pretty rubbish nowadays, you want it to be 20x or 
Yeah. You want to be able to put in 10,000 and be able to buy your house with it, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, I've spoken to a lot of young people who've done exactly that over the last couple of years. That's how they've afforded their deposits is having a little basket of crypto. Uh, and at least uh, over the, between sort of mid 2020 and early 2021, that's, you know, uh, if they play that well, they've been able to get onto the property ladder. Um, so, but you do get, you know, money pouring into various things. Someone might say, oh, the next thing is uh, parking spaces because ownership of cars might be going down. And, it's, you know, people pour money into that, or it might be, you know, green stocks, or it might be something else. I mean, there's always something. Mm. Uh, the surplus is always, always get sucked into it. It's not quite the same scale as a real estate market. Uh, and owning or occupying real estate is unavoidable if we want to exist on this earth. So that's the reason why it's sort of more fundamental than the others. It's so interesting that it's driven by land in that way. I know, I know you've said it before, and I guess it's it's taken a few times for you to say it for it to really sink in and we, we we know obviously you can't make more land so it's the one thing unless i suppose you 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 reclaim it from the sea which is extremely difficult um but it, it, it does make perfect sense because it's 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 a bit like the uh, energy costs of of when oil goes up everything costs more because it costs more to mm. get to work it costs, costs more to power everything and and to deliver goods or whatever they might be and that that goes right across all the sectors so it is an extremely interesting starting point of the pyramid to work out where everything else sits um and and um you you use different types of wave analysis um could you tell us about how you do that because you're you're currently in the process of, of writing a book, which I can't wait to read. And I want to learn more about this because clearly you're, you're getting, not only because you're getting the markets right, I find it very fascinating. Uh, so what, uh, I mean, the, the book, uh, and thanks for the, thanks for the plug uh, and gentle encouragement for me to get it finished. <laughs> it's taking ages. Um, I, yeah, so that will be essentially around the 18 year, uh, real estate cycle. So I'll take people through that in, in in detail as to kind of the main phases and what happens with interest rates and other things uh, during each of those phases uh, and the stock market and you know what kind of sectors tend to do well at what phase. Um, the I, I will briefly mention within that in one chapter a longer term cycle which I also use, which is the Kondratiev wave, which I think you've mentioned in other uh, podcast episodes with other guests. Um, that's a 55 to 60 year commodity cycle. Um, it doesn't mean that commodity cycles just move in 60 year waves. So clearly they have uh, more um, short term fluctuations. Um, and it's not it's not so much a price cycle uh, as it is kind of a technology stroke geopolitical cycle. Uh, and so what you tend to find is you have uh, a a wave of about 30 years of rising prices uh, and a lot of rollout of technology and a lot of relatively um, bullish activity. You know, you you basically see new economies getting integrated into the global economy uh, and so on. Uh, it's also quite a turbulent time. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's also the case that is, you know, the price of basic materials goes up it puts a lot of people under pressure uh, food prices go up you get a lot of uh, as we saw in in north africa in in 2011 
you get a lot of uh, internal turmoil, particularly in more marginal economies and people not able to afford to feed their families. Of course, it's going to create uh, a lot of social disorder. Um, so they're not often easy times. Uh, and then you also get increasing levels of geopolitical tension between the great powers um, for control and access to resources and to markets. Uh, and so, you know, certainly seeing that with uh, China and the United States or China and Russia and the, the West, um, just as we saw that in the into the 70s, um, you know, the USSR and America or into the 1920s at the peak of the previous cycle, um, the German and British empires uh, and so on back in history. Um, and on the downside, you tend to find um, that when recessions hit, uh, in a, in the context of a falling wave of commodity prices, they tend to be much deeper and darker, uh, and more severe and more protracted, um, and uh, and you know possibly that you know explains why the Great Depression, for example, was much more significant than other um, financial crises, stroke recessions that that take place after every uh, real estate cycle. So compared to I don't know the um, the mid to late seventies. I know it was a difficult time, but it wasn't quite like the Great Depression, uh, for example. So that's that's another cycle I use um, for stock markets. I use you know de decade or twenty year cycles, um, or sixty years uh, tends to be quite a powerful one in the markets. Uh, and uh, yeah. So do, do you so, have like, do you have like lots of um, do you have uh, charts with lots of waves on them showing these cycles and then when more than one cycle is operating at a um, like for example if you hit a low on two cycles at the same time and the market goes down you know that you're in for a much bigger up wave is is do you, is that how you do it because how, how would you choose between one cycle or another if they're conflicting. I mean, this is this is a really good question. And a lot of people who study cycles, you know, this is kind of almost the main thing that they are trying to work out. Like for me, the, uh, as I said before, for the reasons I set out earlier, the real estate 18 year real estate cycle is the most important. I mean, when that turns down, there's, you know, pretty much going to bring everything down with it because you can't, uh, you know, you can't, the, the, our economic system can't function without, you know, business credit and without, uh, you know, banks kind of in 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 some somewhat good shape and um uh, and property prices that are falling quite rapidly particularly in um more marginal areas and all the kind of effects of that higher unemployment and low spending and and so on um and so that is for me the most important cycles it's one of the reasons why uh, unlike some cycles analysis uh suggested that 2019 for example would be a fairly major peak. The reason that a lot of people said that was because they look at thirty-year cycles, um, and that happened, and the, or th you know multiples thereof. So sixty being two thirty-year cycles, and ninety being another three, uh, th three cycles. Uh, and so they're calling twenty nineteen as a major kind of depression because it was tw ninety years after nineteen twenty nine. Right. Uh, and, and for us, uh, so looking at kind of bringing it back to the real economy, I, I kind of knew that it coincided quite well with the mid-cycle. I thought the possibility of a uh, of a stock market panic would be there, but ultimately it would correct itself pretty quickly given where we were in the real estate cycle. So for me, I, I bring it back down to where we are in the real estate cycle. I know other people don't. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's trying to fit cycles together is a lot of what cycle analysts 
uh, do. Um, and to be, honest, to be honest, it's somewhat hit or miss. It's not perfectly scientific, uh, in my view. Uh, and uh, and so there's still you know there's still a lot of research uh, going on in that area. Brilliant. Uh- Tim, sorry, I've, I've I've been hogging the mic a little bit. So no, I no, it's, no, it's absolutely fine. No, it's absolutely fine. Um, I just I wanted to address some of my usual um, sort of obsessions, and uh, I guess mine would be what 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 is your analysis in relation to the commodities, oil and gold markets? Um, yeah. So they, I mean, we're and sorry i just bring back a point that paul made about cycles coinciding so we are in a period where we've got the second half of the real estate cycle which is the more speculative half which involves a lot more construction and investment in in physical infrastructure so you say speculative so we're now we're now in the screen if you want to go faster phase well we're starting that i mean it's it's generally more speculative but you know we'll take we'll take some time we'll take some time to get to that, so I, the, the first kind of year or so after a recession tends to be a bit muddled, in my view. I think in a couple of years' time we'll be full into it, and there will be a lot of a lot of bullishness and a lot of um, you know rising prices and everyone spending money and investing in all sorts of things. Um, that tends with rising land prices that unlocks a lot of capital investment uh, in housing and in businesses and. It follows, you know, improvements in rail and road and all the rest of it. And in, in this in this era, also um, investment in green technology, um, and that clearly pushes up demand for um, industrial metals and copper and iron ore and and other things. Um, so I certainly feel that side of the commodity complex should, on the whole, be very uh, significantly bullish over the next few years. I mean, it doesn't mean up in a straight line. Uh, and it, I mean, I find it increasingly hard to um, to call just because you get, you know, suddenly get news that, um, you know, China or some other country has been hoarding commodities and they've decided they've hoarded it too much and now they're going to dump load onto the market. And it causes a bit of a correction when you weren't expecting it. So, um, you know, I'm always cognizant saying that, you know, commodity prices are going to go up there is a lot more to understanding how uh, these things work than just simply looking at price charts. Um, in terms of oil, I mean, I I suspect that oil is, at least in terms of regulation and investment and other things, and given where, you know, um, kind of are thinking about energy sourcing has, has been going, I, I suspect there's probably an undersupply of oil. Uh, that will hit at crunch points. And so oil, I probably will have pretty strong few years. And in addition, it follows economic growth. And, you know, people will certainly want to be flying around the world again once we've fully opened up and so on. So I think oil on the whole should probably be quite bullish. But I, there is a sort of, you know, the sort of Damocles hanging over the oil market. Uh, and maybe at some point we won't really need as much as we have. Um, but that's probably going to play out over a longer time frame than the next few years. Um, well, it gold, might even be possible to reverse the tide of green crap. <laughs> I, uh, to be honest, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think um, I think people. I mean, one. I mean, you know, because the thing is, is oil, it, it's one thing to talk about oil as a, if you like, a fossil fuel, yeah. and it's sort of, you know, it, it's it's grubbiness, it's dirtiness. But on the other hand, you know, you, without oil, we can, we don't have modern civilization. We don't have plastic. We don't have you know all these things that are derived from oil. So it's 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 easy to dismiss it as a sort of a fusty old 
fussy old, dirty old, dusty old commodity. But the bottom line is we're not going to replace oil any time in the next century. I appreciate it maybe on a de- declining curve yeah. in terms of use, but it's not going to go away. No, I don't think and it's going to go away. Because we can't exist without it. It won't, it, won't be, it won't be this kind of, you know, black gold status. I mean, it is yeah. now, but it may not have that indefinitely. Um, but, you know, I mean, in terms of kind of shorter term fluctuations, I mean, sentiment, I think, plays a, quite a significant role. And, and so if, if, um, if people are, you know, wanting to get rid of it or if, you know, a country might make a decision that it doesn't want to be dependent on importing it, from from overseas through troubled waters and all that kind of stuff. So mm. so that that can also have an effect. Um, I so but anyway, I think oil on the whole will be pretty strong over the next few years. Um, Same for natural gas. Um, yes, similar, I think similar. So. similar. Just because it's you know it's it seems to be a transition away from slightly more dirty uh, fossil yeah. fuels. Yeah. Um, gold and silver. Uh, so. I'm finding gold a little more difficult to say. I mean, from previous cycles, and there isn't that much uh, price data because, you know, until... uh, Well, the price was fixed until 71. Exactly, exactly. It was fixed. Um, And, I mean, you've got silver prices, some of which were fixed, some of which weren't. um, And you can can sort of work out a picture. What tends to happen is gold, I think, on the whole, follows the broader commodity complex. I don't know if it necessarily lead it in the way maybe as it has done in the late part of the last decade. Um, But it's certainly the case that when you have a financial crisis and there's a a sort of concern about the overall economic and financial system, uh, gold is one of the the commodities that people go into. So I think probably it will follow other commodities up, uh, maybe not in the lead uh, over the next few years. There may be some inflationary concerns that, I mean, they certainly will be uh, as we get into the, into the kind of meat of this current uh, phase of the economic cycle. Um, but I think it will have its moment again um, as we approach the peak and, and, and shortly thereafter, uh, which I've forecast to be around 2026 based on the 18-year cycle. So at, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to talk about with regard to 2026. Obviously, it's like it's not going to be a hard stop at, at, and everything turns down in 2026 um, because who, who could predict it that that well? You know, let, let's let's see. Yeah. But w- what happens after that and, and what signs do we look for to suggest that the the big turning is, is, is going to occur? Well, I mean, the be- almost the best most visible sign of uh, of the peak approaching is someone announcing some bloody big building um, and you know right. saying it's going to be the tallest ever and I mean and actually it's going to be a series of them in the next few years but there will be something that's truly staggering a bit like the Burj Khalifa uh, was in in the late 2000s the mid to late 2000s um, or the Empire State Building in in uh, 1929 right uh, so that's kind of one sign I mean, you know, there'll be sort of truly outrageous behavior, um, you know, in, in, in the mid 2000s, I think Dubai announced it was building 24 islands in the, <laughs> in the kind of sea. I don't know what you call the sea just off the coast. Yes. I remember. And, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was 20, not only that, it's 24 islands with 
each with its own microclimate, some of which would represent sort of, you know, a wintry Scandinavian uh, uh, sort of place. I mean, you know, totally ludicrous waste of money. Um, and uh, so, you know, you'll get, and I, you know, I dread to think what that was then. I dread to think what's coming <laughs> now. I mean, maybe something in virtual reality. Uh, and, and maybe it will be the sale of little plots of Decentraland. You've probably heard of that. Um, no, no. I mean, I've heard about the, the that that area, obviously, and how it's it's yeah. like second life, and how how oh, we could have, yeah, how yeah. we could have a version of that. But no, I've not not heard Decentraland. That's the first time. Yeah, I've yeah. Heard. yeah. So I mean, you know, it's, it's classic kind of real estate speculation. So, so the plots near the because I think there are there's one entry point into Decentraland, or one or two different entry points, and then your avatar, I guess, navigates through the the location. It. Mm. Um, and of course, the plots of land that you can use to build a virtual, you know, whatever you can build up to seven stories and you can create whatever you want. It's a place where people can hang out or you can have a virtual dance club or, or whatever. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm now starting to think of myself old. So I just don't get any of this stuff. But, yeah, I mean, um, you, as you say, it sounds crazy. But then if you think about it, if you're in there and you're meeting people and, it, and this is the thing about us humans we want to meet people and we want to communicate so if it's a new way of meeting and communicating with people in a similar similar way that twitter and all the other platforms work then it it, it makes sense but on its own yeah. it doesn't because it's like this is crazy why don't we just live in the real world <laughs> i mean yeah i mean this is a, this is a very valid point and you get to meet you know in virtual reality or on twitter and which is a form of you know <laughs> virtual reality yeah maybe reality in inverted commas um where you do communicate with a much broader range of people than you could possibly otherwise do so no i do accept that uh, but what they're finding is you in order to build one of these virtual constructs in decentraland you have to own the plot uh, and you can buy the plot on a market and lo and behold the plots of land or virtual land nearest the access points into decentraland are the ones that are going for the most amount of money and the ones along the main roads and et cetera, et cetera. So we're basically essentially taking our kind of view, our version of land monopoly capitalism into virtual reality. Uh, and if we're doing that, you know, we will ultimately take our real estate cycles into there as well. That is incredible. That's absolutely incredible. I'm I'm going to be checking that out. I want I want one by the sea. That's uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think mana mana m a n a is the token uh, that is the currency or something in that um, in that world. I don't too much. I don't know much about it, so I'll probably mm. shut my mouth now if I expose my ignorance. No, no, no that's that's <laughs> that's great. I mean, you know, a lot more than I do, and uh, I you know I'd never heard of it before. So that's that's fantastic. Interesting name as well for a for a cryptocurrency. Yeah. So, um, so you use other cycle analysis, but probably you sprinkle it in a little. Perhaps I mean I'm putting words in your mouth. I'd rather you t tell me. You 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 look at a, a war cycle as well, and and also astro cycles to a certain extent. Well, it's um, it's impossible to study cycle analysis without coming across um, you know someone who said, well, you know, this is all related to planetary cycles. Yeah, uh, and then of course, once you open that, I don't know if you call it Pandora's box. If you go down that rabbit hole or, or whatever the relevant metaphor is, uh, you get into a very interesting um, matrix. Kind of space. Let's try it's another six, one. <laughs> it's a, it's a, well, that's right. It's a bit like it's a bit like the Matrix, um, 
And uh, I mean, I find that sort of thing. I've always had a fascination with things that are esoteric mm. um, and, you know, with things that you can't explain. And, you know, maybe maybe some of these explanations are pretty, pretty silly or we're just seeing things or just seeing patterns. But it's it's quite an interesting area of study. And I know that a couple of other people have talked about cycles on your show have kind of hinted that they might know a little bit about that as well. I think Ben Butler was on a few weeks ago. Um, I mean, I think, I think, um, I mean, just to follow that through, um, and I don't know if this is of interest or not, some, I mean, some cycles related to planetary um, phenomena are pretty obvious. I mean, you know, everyone knows that the moon affects the tides uh, and affects kind of growing and affects the, you know, how water moves around the earth and, and so on. I don't think, I think people won't argue that the moon is is quite an important cycle. It affects, you know, um, you know, our bodies even to a certain extent. Um, and I think this has become somewhat recognized by people who work in public services. So I'm told, I think I saw this in an article a few years ago. Um, if if there was a football match on the full moon, um, I think it was West Sussex police or some police force would have extra officers uh, uh, doing crowd control. Wow. Because, because they had found that actually you get uh, greater incidents of, and I use this word deliberately, lunatic behavior mm. um, around the full moon. And I think A&E departments have found that uh, similarly you get more people fighting in the streets and so therefore more, more people sitting in A&E. And they're also uh, overwhelmed by uh, werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so it's kind of, you know, it's it's quite a funny um it's, you know we can we can laugh and and, and so on um but you know but it works that's are, the point people are, that's the point it's, it works and there's obviously something going on that's related to the moon cycle i don't think that's probably too much of a stretch um well we are we are 70 to 80 percent water so the moon exerts a magnetic pull on a gravitational pull on water so it's plausible to assume there's some kind of bio chemical thing happening possibly and what about the sun the sun's got well, cycles exactly. that are massive yeah. and and have a, a huge influence on, on on the planet much more than anything else well that, that's that's a very critical point actually because the sun by far and away is the most important uh, object in in the heavens and so and it has you know sunspot cycles and all sorts of things uh, and it has it, it 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 exerts an enormous gravitational pull on every object uh, every every atom in the universe um so that's kind of i suppose if and this is where people who study such things they haven't they don't really have an answer they don't know why these things might work i mean it maybe it's something to do with gravity or or whatever um they, but they can't they can't otherwise explain it and so therefore to a certain extent they're dismissed um and i you know for me i don't i just look at what works i don't really want to understand why it happens and and i'm prepared to accept that there's not really much to it um but you know i'm open to the idea that actually if it works there might be something to it as well i do um recall reading a study that i think it was the bank of scotland the royal bank of scotland did in 2006 or something uh, and they're probably having a bit of fun but they took stock price data from 1927 um and they constructed a strategy uh or they, they sorry they compared three strategies the first strategy was you just buy the market and hold it. Uh, a second strategy was uh, you buy the market on the new moon and you sell it on the full moon. The idea being that actually the new moon to full moon period, as uh, I, I think gardeners would know, is 
is a period of growth and you see kind of stronger growth and it's a better time to be planting and so on. Really? I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's quite a there's actually fairly fairly um there's things fairly well known. Um, right. Uh, and I mean, I'm not a gardener, so no, and, uh, me neither. Probably if they've got any gardeners listening to this, they can they they can correct, <laughs> they can write in and correct. Um, but you know, it's that the idea. It's a, it's a period in the month where it's 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 better to plant. It's a period of growth. Uh, so that was a second strategy: buy the new moon, sell the full moon. And then the third strategy was buy the full moon and uh, sell at the new moon. So the opposite uh, to test the you know the opposite proposition because actually that period is supposed to be the the waning part of the phase uh, and so you would it's not it's not the period of growth anyway of of those three strategies the one that outperformed by a very long way was the one where you buy at the new moon and sell at the full moon crazy uh, and the second was um buy in the whole the market and the third was uh is uh, the there's the other one buy at the full and sell at the new that i mean that anyway, yeah sorry you heard it you heard it here f- first folks <laughs> I mean that that's that was a number of years ago. I mean, I have to say, um, I have uh, I have friends who have developed um, charting packages, and there's a lot of technical analysts who are kind of into this sort of mm. thing in a pretty sophisticated way. Um, I mean, the people who sell these charting packages, I mean, they know that there are a lot of traders in Wall Street and in the city who who use this stuff. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not just a a, a fringe. Um, Birkenstock wearing minority. It's you know, no. it's pretty, it's pretty it's, there's quite a lot of money Any, also invested in in looking at these sorts of things. Anything uh, that well. gives you an edge, anything that gives you an edge is 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 worth looking at. And and they wouldn't look at it unless it gave them the edge. If it really if there was no correlation, they wouldn't bother. But it it's um very similar in some ways to Elliott Wave analysis, which is pretty complicated, but at the heart of it is that human beings are part of nature and we are subject to mathematical uh, or we can be described mathematically in the same way that we can describe nature mathematically. I mean, our own bodies can be described mathematically and are, are in certain proportions to the golden ratio um, that keeps cropping up everywhere, which is what underlies Elliott wave theory. Mm. And th- because we are part of human you know we are part of nature the markets are part of nature so it's just an extrapolation an extension of us that we are creating these patterns thinking that we're all kind of working independently and and rationally but actually all our thoughts and processes are governed by nature we we, what we like and what we don't like is pre-programmed in us so we have less control than we really think like the decision to buy and sell might pop into your head but that's a kind of natural decision um that that's occurred because maybe you want to take profits to pay for something or maybe you're scared and you you think the market's going to collapse all those things um can can be described mathematically and so that sounds crazy when you when you say it out loud but it's and and you know there'll be many people who completely disagree with it which is absolutely their prerogative but mm. but to me that there is it makes logical sense that we we cannot we cannot be um separated we can't say that we're not part of nature because we are i mean for example the way yeah. the way we find people attractive is designed uh, pre-programmed in in us so we look for 
symmetry. So the more symmetrical a face is, the more we find it attractive. That is not something we can change because that that is just there. So if we think about that as on its own as a simple process, um, which we think we're making our own decisions about, then why should we think that we're making stock market decisions in any different way? I think, well, I mean, you, you find that, you know, cycles and all these other things work better at times of high emotion. Uh, so there's less, you know, you quote unquote, less rationality about decisions. You know, you know, the decisions around one's wealth, uh, bank balance and so on are inherently emotional things. And so, you know, in, in moments of panic, uh, we we behave emotionally. And it, it tends to be when we do so that uh, you can you can identify these various kind of price patterns and ratios in financial markets uh, just I, as you can in, in, in nature i would argue that we're always like that because you can't you can't actually switch that off at any point it's just perhaps more more evident at those those turning points yeah you got to make quick decisions and you're you're there's much more kind of feedback between different participants because everyone's making a decision at the same time uh, but yeah i mean i think we're making we're making the same point yeah um the the yeah the golden ratio is the growth ratio so things that tend to grow tend to have, display the golden ratio uh, and we also we also have have it as our sort of standard of beauty so uh, as you say so um you know the ratio of the the length of a to the side of a rectangle for example um yeah uh, for example on your credit card is the golden ratio is it really oh, okay yeah yeah Sorry, I I mean, i'm sure deliberately so you find it very attractive so you use it a lot <laughs> i see and uh, the the width of a person's nose to the width of their mouth is supposed to be the golden ratio but there's golden ratios all over the yeah yeah your, all over your the face tooth, your teeth your 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 fingers you know that each each uh, part of your finger yeah um the angle between a tree trunk and the, how the branches branch out is also a golden ratio in in in, in terms of the angle wow so i didn't it, know that bit. yeah yeah pyramids you know they've yeah. used the golden ratio classical buildings etc cetera, etc cetera. parthenon as well yeah so it's um so it was known about very long a very long time ago the, the you know the the ancient architects knew all about this um but you know w when you say it in a modern context it sounds crazy doesn't it it sounds like well this is just sort of voodoo or or how can how can that be because everything is different now we've we've never been in this place in history different before this time but it's <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun is there I mean, some of the brightest minds in humanity's history were studying this. I think I think it was Keynes that got hold of Newton's papers. Um, uh, and some of the brightest minds and Keynes. <laughs> I mean, he was talking. He did a lecture on he did a lecture on Newton at his um, at his bicentennial or the bicentennial of his death or something. Uh, and was saying that you know Newton is in a very long tradition, and he he called them the Magi, and you know, basically kind of people who essentially searching for these sorts of answers to why things happen in the way they do. And, you know, there's, and I haven't, I've never read this somewhere, but someone told me about it, that uh, Copernicus and Galileo and and Newton, I mean, they developed their laws of motion in their study of, of the planets in order to be able to identify where the planets would be at any particular point in time. Because, uh, I mean, these things had been known to mathematicians and um, astronomers in ancient India, but, some of the knowledge had been lost or been not been transmitted um and uh so and obviously the medieval period was a period where this earth was the center of the universe and 
all sorts of things. They weren't interested in in all these things. And so when you had the beginning of the scientific revolution, the first things that they were looking at, in addition to actually standards of beauty and representing reality properly as in, in the Florentine Renaissance, uh, was also understanding, you know, how planetary motion works uh, and, you know, being able to calculate where a planet would be at any particular point in time. There's a book called The Swerve, I think, that deals with this, which is rediscovering the knowledge that the ancients had and then we we lost for whatever reasons but the reasons you've just alluded to it's quite yeah. amazing to think what what ancient civilizations were capable of doing in terms of maths and science yes i mean a, a civilization that could build the pyramids um i mean with you know not with machines and i mean the precision that they that they had uh in for example the pyramids were cased in this sort of these enormous um I think limestone. Yes, they were white, uh, weren't kind they? Of thing. Yeah. yeah, well, they were white, but also the join with them was uh, narrower than the width of your fingernail. I mean, it was incredible precision. Well, I've seen Stargates. It was done with aliens. <laughs> well, <laughs> quite possibly. I mean, that's, that's they can't explain it. So, of course, it must be some alien <laughs> that's come down to Earth to, to build it for us. So... With regard to, um, we've had previous guests talk about the fourth turning, which, to be honest, I don't know anything about. Uh, I've just heard that phrase, and there was a book that apparently should be read. Yeah. I haven't read it and uh, as yet, um, but is this something that you could um, explain to us and, and tell us a bit about? Um, well, I only know the sort of bare bones of it. I've not read it, either, I'm afraid to say. Um, but my understanding is that within a eight i think it's 80 year cycle right there's a there's four um kind of generations of um people who or four cohorts with increasingly uh different kind of values in relation to kind of community or individual and i think there was another dimension which i now forget um and at the end of each fourth cohort or generation you get kind of a major social rupture um and we are kind of on the cusp of that at the moment is that that's the kind of main thesis is that right well, to be honest i don't know that that's that's kind of why i was asking because i have okay sorry yeah, yeah. That, that's my understanding so do you get the i think you, uh, and i actually one of your previous guests explained this i thought um sort of fairly succinctly it's a um you it's a it's a the sort of commun communal or communitarian or whatever the word is values that dominate for about 20 years. And I think in reaction to that, you get uh, a move towards individuality and individualism. And you could say that, you know, so, you know, probably the period out of the second world war was a lot more communal until about, um, well, I, don't, I mean, and this, and this is the problem with kind of theses like this is that um, it's quite hard to pinpoint when, a new kind of wave of sentiment starts and ends, mm. uh, and so you tend to be. It tends to be. You tend to kind of have to just pick and select your sources, and then you could people can argue while well, you're just kind of seeing things which maybe someone else wouldn't see. But eighties, so maybe is a turning point that that people see the big bang, the big bang, and and stock market, and yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and then I don't know what the third and fourth are, but the. We, I, you know, if it's a twenty-year segment, then up to about two thousand was probably the end, the kind of peak individualism. Um, and we are now kind of in the twenty twenties, approaching the the point of sort of extreme social disruption. I mean, 
so to, to to bring it to something that I do know a bit more about, um, you definitely see twenty year cycles in kind of the economy. Twenty years is similar to an eighteen year cycle, um, but you also see it in the stock market. Um, I don't. I have to say, I haven't really, I haven't really seen eighty year cycles much. I, you know, there's nothing that I can really pinpoint to that kind of suggests that that's a very significant um, feature in the stock market, so or in the economy. Um, 60 years tends to be very powerful. Um, and um, but nevertheless, if if the the if the prediction is that in the late 2020s, we'd have some kind of major social disruptive event whereby, you know, what emerges from it would be a quite a radically different form of organization to the one we have. How about a, a, a manufactured pandemic leading to uh, the introduction <laughs> of central bank digital currency, Chinese social credit scores, biosurveillance, and a slave state? Well, but then, but then I suppose the idea would be that then you go through some crisis and then you have a reaction to that. Yeah. So, so maybe that has, but, but that would fit very much with with the idea that you have a major financial collapse, and um, you know, out of all of that, there's always a lot of anger and a lot of reaction and. Mm. Things go off, actually, and, and, and then an introduction of the new monetary system. Potentially, yeah. Oh, I mean, I I tend to think. I mean, I'd imagine it ev will evolve rather than we have a sort of a point of um, rupture and then it's something mm. totally new. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that's the case because you know, revolution is extremely painful and um, you know, it, they somewhat uncontrolled and lead in very unhelpful directions. Um, so, so hopefully it's more evolution than revolution. Uh, a, the, said, sorry to interrupt. There's a, there's a line that uh, I quite like, which is um, from a guy called G. Michael Hopp. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. I think that might be the kind of the main idea behind the fourth turning. Actually, it could. I mean, there might be that sort of. Because we are we are surrounded in political terms. We are surrounded by weak men at the moment. I'd agree. So you write your own research that obviously is for your subscribers and you're part of property share market economics. Do you do you manage money as well? Is it something you might do in in the future or or is this something you're you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so we've just set up a fund in Australia. Ah, um, right. to to um invest in stocks uh and uh well, in stocks or in funds, um, in line with our sort of ideas about the eighteen point six year cycle. And who's the who's the hour in that? So there's you and so so my business partner Phil Anderson, and a, a third partner who kind of actually manages the money and the relationship with the um, custodian and so on. So are you, are you already set up? What's the name of the fund, and where can we find details? Uh, well, it's at the moment only open to Australian. Um, money so you got to be a resident in australia but we're looking at um we're looking at some way of doing that either in the uk or allowing sort of overseas investors to participate um i mean if we got enough interest it'd be a lot easier because it would be a somewhat of a relatively high setup cost to do it uh it's just called the 18.6 year strategic investment portfolio excellent um, i like that so and, yeah so yeah. If, if you were to do that in the future and, and and how would you announce it would you put it on twitter or or where would we find out because you're not really uh, active on twitter if i'm 
if my memory serves me, but please correct me. No, I, I, I most days I forget that I'm uh, that I'm on Twitter. <laughs> so yes, no, I need to get better because uh, I'll put on Twitter, but I mean, we'll uh, we will, um, you know, yeah. I suppose that's actually probably the best way at the moment. Um, yeah. yeah. So so you so in between while you're managing and setting that fund up and and you're you're writing research that appears on property share market economics and and do you it, 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 that's a collective if you go to that website you can see there's there's many people on there do you write anything that's that's separate from that in a separate place or does it all go down that channel as it were i do occasional pieces for south bank investment research um, right uh, but yeah no mostly it's it's I mean, there's a, a there's a weekly blog which uh, one of my colleagues writes, uh, which I edit, um, and we have we have a couple of different publications as part of that um, suite of uh, of products. Uh, so I wrote for those. Yeah, I'm beginning to see why writing a book can be quite challenging because you're obviously writing all the time or editing. Yes, um, and I don't have. I, I mean. Whenever I read Tim's stuff, it seems to flow very nicely, and I, I imagine that Tim just sits there and it just comes out, and it's 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 very easy. But I find I it a very challenging process. I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well. I, Stop I, I, me before I write again. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's getting to the end, really, isn't it? And getting all your ideas yeah. down. But I mean, it, look, genuinely, if you write the way you speak it's going to be an amazing book. So I can't, I can't wait to, to, to see it. And, and I'm sort of hinting that I wouldn't mind seeing an early copy, but any, anyway, anyway, well, we if can, you're, if you're, if you would like to comment on draft chapters, then you'd be more, you can, you can see it as early as you want. Yeah. I'd uh, love, can, I'd love can, to camp in as well. Yeah. I'll be delighted okay. to do that. Yeah, okay. definitely. Definitely. Uh, I'm actually currently writing a, uh, so, or editing the chapter on kind of economic rent. So this is kind of trying to explain why the real estate part of the, economy is so important to the overall cycle so actually you probably will have a lot of there, there is a there is a hoary old joke there's two people at a party and one says what are you doing and the other one says i'm writing a book and the first one says neither am i <laughs> yeah. it's you know large periods of this summer it's definitely it's definitely been like that but i had i had my first uh, coffee with uh, craig at harriman house is he, oh he's yeah, my editor he's a lovely guy yeah he is he is I didn't realise he was so tall. I'd obviously not seen him in the flesh until until Thursday. But anyway, he you know he's gently suggesting that you know right time to get it done and give me a draft. So have so you I've read got my, my marching orders? Sorry, sorry, to, I didn't mean to. Have you have you read Dominic Frisbee's book um, Daylight Robbery? Because it's it's be, be, uh, the um, it's all about tax, but it relates exactly to what you're saying about land and saying that we should tax land. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I tax know, land, I, but tax land, but release the taxes on everything else. Yes, exactly. exactly. I mean, this is this is. I mean, I know I haven't read that book. I've I've ordered it, um, but I know Dominic's work, and mm. he and I in an utter agreement about the um, the you know where the tax base should come from. It's it or it's it's effectively a service charge on the value of land, which is you know the product of. Um, you know, community and public investment. That's what gives land its value. Uh, and I mean, we're not talking about the building on land and improvements that one makes, that's private investment and that should not be taxed or or, or in other way. I mean, that you, sh you should be entitled to the complete uh, value of that. Um, 
and similarly with wages and, and business profits other than the part of the profits that's down to to locational value yeah did, did I mean, there's sorry just just on that um because the, the the chapter after the one on economic rent um will be on why no one sees the cycle and, and one of the reasons why no one sees the cycle is because um the probably the first person to propose this uh, idea of fiscal reform was uh, an economist called Henry George, who I've mentioned yes. on here previously. Uh, and of course, uh, a lot of landowners, who most of whom sat in the House of Lords and uh, controlled, uh, you know, endowed economics and business faculties in the US, um, didn't like this idea because you know their sort of the value of their holdings would would be taxed and then have to go and get a job. So um, they, I mean, essentially. In, in the UK, I mean, the Liberal government in 1909 tried to pass uh, the what was would have been the beginnings of a land value tax. And, and of course, it was vetoed, even though it was a money bill by the House of Lords, which led to a constitutional crisis. Uh, and in the US, um, they effectively uh, in, subverted the discipline of economics. Um, so before you know, all the classical economists would talk about land, labour and capital as the sort of three primary factors of production. Uh, and after um, after the 1920s, it was just labour and capital and land was merged into the idea of capital, even though land is you know, freely produced by nature or it's not produced by man. Um, it's immobile and like capital, which is mobile and like labour, which is mobile uh, and ultimately takes the residual of any economic um, surplus. So, so you know, the the level of wages and the level of capital return is is set in a competitive market, uh, and then the rest is is uh, accrues to the landowner. Uh, and in our highly sophisticated modern technological economies, that surplus is absolutely enormous. Um, and so the idea that labor and capital would be the same thing is really one of the reasons why you can't ever properly diagnose uh, the boom and bust cycle. It also explains why with each successive cycle, you get increasing inequality because, you know, land ownership and ownership of rent uh, generating resources is increasingly concentrated because, of course, if you own one of these things and you generate a big surplus, then you the logical thing to do would be then to plough that surplus into something else which generates rent. And so you get rising inequality. And, and the reality is that if you don't have some kind of reform along the lines that George said, which was, you know, I think everyone from a moral point of view would agree that if you create value, you get to keep it. And if you take value because it's produced collectively or by someone else that you, you don't take it, I think most people would agree with that proposition. So it's not a revolutionary idea. Um, if you don't do that, then unfortunately, the alternative is extreme revolution. So in the early 20th century, uh, people, um, people, George was discredited. And so people turned to Karl Marx. Um, and if you know, uh, if you're, that frying pan. Well, exactly. But uh, you see, the thing is, we had extraordinary sort of scenario in in the uh, late 19th century, George, you know, came to the UK and did kind of major lectures and other things. He was becoming a really big figure. Uh, and you had conservative MPs, you know, promoting Marx at the expense of George because they didn't regard Marx as a threat to their landowning interests in the same way that uh, they did Henry George. It's an extraordinary, um, you know, sign. Of, I think it's Arthur Balfour who was... Um, 
who is praising Marx and saying, oh, this is fantastic work. And George is just, you know, just an idiot. It's, it's, it's crazy kind of uh, when you think about it. Uh, and so I, I, I fear that um, the reaction to the next crisis, if we don't get some kind of sensible reform along the lines that Dominic has set out in his book and has been set out elsewhere, is, is something much more radical and much more painful. The Pareto principle of, of 80-20 that should encompass many areas of, of life, including wealth, which is clearly skewed so far out. Is that something that over, over time these cycles correct back towards? Because obviously it's not, that's not the case at the moment, but it was. And, and, um, and, and another one that you, you may be familiar with is the, the power law that relates to the number of people within a city. So um, the, the, the population follows a power law. So this is back to this, mathematics underlying everything that we think we do naturally but but um again that could be distorted slightly by property prices being lower in one area and 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 therefore um not following it exactly but then then it readjusting back to its its inverted commas norm um how do you feel about about that um so there used to be a corrective at the end of each cycle. So you would have a pretty, I mean, you look at the history of of real estate cycles in the 19th century, uh, particularly in the US. I mean, the downturn in those in those situations was very significant. Um, it was, you know, you know, the I think there was kind of coming up to 20 or 30 percent unemployment after the uh, 1929 Wall Street crash and Possibly the after the crisis in 1893, the 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 economic severity was was even greater. So so um, the, the that was in a to a certain extent uh, a correction which allowed the economy to reset itself, albeit that with a lot of trauma and a lot of anger and uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, pretty significant, uh, uh, pretty prolonged, should I say, uh, period of of turmoil. I think after, and uh, this was pointed out in a book called The Power in the Land by Fred Harrison, who read it, resurrected the idea of the 18-year cycle. Um, uh, he pointed out that the response to the 1974 uh, economic downturn um, due to the land market, but then, you know, the oil shock has kind of in, in popular imagination taken the blame for, for that. Um, he said that it was the first time when actually the government pulled out all the stops to prevent um, the property market from collapsing very significantly in the way that it had done before. Uh, and so you then get these, with each successive cycle, a bigger and bigger bailout. And so probably what you don't get is the proper correction. Uh, and there's, I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, the, the, the extreme level of inequality that we're getting now that was kind of started with that sort of approach to dealing with a downturn. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why the numbers get bigger and bigger with each bailout, because it's linked to the size of the land market or kind of more, more particularly the amount of bank credit that has been created to enable people to acquire land. Right. That's fascinating. Absolutely. And to, fascinating. Go, to go back to your earlier question, Paul, about you know, the 
there being a trend or is there a trend to sort of level things out in wealth disparity? I'd, I'd say it happens at a generational level to the extent that you have this phrase, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve in three generations. So you have the entrepreneur who creates the wealth and then the second generation that spends it and the third one completely squanders it, dissipates mm. it to start again. And it's amazing how you can't stop it. Like governments think they can. Gordon Brown said, we've ended boom and bust. And anybody who knew anything about markets just laughed. And because mm. you cannot stop these cycles, you can, you can. Well, it's like saying you can change human nature, which you can't. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. But Akil, absolutely fascinating. Um, just, just one final question for me about, I know you don't concentrate on cryptocurrencies, but given that Bitcoin is the, the biggest or best known cryptocurrency out there and it has a halving cycle of every four years, does that tempt you into that area to look, look at potential cycle analysis in, in that growing field or are you busy enough with the current cycles that you're looking at and, and all the analysis that you're doing there? No, I'd, I'd be very interested in looking at cycles. We just don't have enough data, so yeah. you can't do much with the, um I mean, I think you probably wouldn't regard the data on Bitcoin as particularly robust until, you know, the mid-2010s. Um, you know, there's enough volume and so on to for, the, for you to be confident that the price point fully reflects a liquid market with a lot of emotional buying and selling, which is kind of what you need to, to, to identify cycles. Um, but yeah i mean i think in a, in in a in a few years time the market will be mature enough that you might be able to spot some of these things um and i don't know if i don't know to what extent bitcoin is correlated with other cryptocurrencies but it would be quite useful to know what if there is a cycle with bitcoin what it is because it probably could drive how other cryptocurrencies behave yes that's absolutely true um the at the moment what i'm seeing just sort of generally with with just like a broad sort of analysis is that there there does seem to be with the halving every four years a a bull phase and there seems to be this kind of push me pull you type uh, effect where bitcoin will go up and then the altcoins will will just sort of consolidate and look like they're that, that nothing's going to happen there. And then all of a sudden they surge and Bitcoin does nothing. And then you get these tiny technologies that nobody's heard of, like Decentraland that you've just mentioned today. And and they take off. So it, th there are cycles operating in a very similar way to the stock market. And it, it is quite mm. fascinating. So whether this all goes to zero or continues, we, we will see. But at the moment, there does seem to be some, some interesting flow going on. But... Um, but Akil, look, um, was there anything else that we, we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about before we go to media picks? Um, no, I, I think we've covered a fair amount. So I just say one final thing in relation to crypto and, and real estate. Um, and I, this won't probably be my book, so I'm still trying to work out what I think about it. But, you know, this these non-fungible token the NFTs, kind of, yeah. Kind of, should we say, some of this crap uh, that's been going on Um I, I suspect that the technology is really about, uh, you know, it's, it's about fractional ownership of some underlying asset. You know, if you a picture of a dog, you might consider not to be much of an asset, but, you know, there it is. Um, I mean, once that gets into the real estate market, it could blow up an enormous property bubble because, you know, if people can mm. buy and sell little bits of Monaco flat on an exchange, it mm. introduces 
an enormous amount of liquidity uh, into, you know, property at the moment is a relatively illiquid market. I mean, there's with each successive cycle, there's usually some new development to make it more liquid. So illiquid and indivisible. Well, exactly. But but if you can if you can take the title of a real estate asset and chop it up into pieces. um, uh, You know where and then, you know, maybe bundle them up into some way uh, and then sell them on a crypto exchange uh, and then everyone can participate in high end real estate. Yes. Um, so, Tokenization, I think it's does called. Does that mean we could speculate on the future value of, um, uh, we could short um, billionaire properties? Potentially. So, that, that, so that's, that's interesting. So that, that, this is, but you can see where this goes. This brings yeah. in a whole amount of money into, effectively into the equity portion of, uh, of residential and commercial real estate. And... Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, maybe it's not a story for this particular cycle, but I'm I'm sure it will be, uh, assuming we don't have a major revolution, um, a story about a future one. And uh, it could blow what seem to be already pretty significant real estate bubbles into something that we, you know, we just can, at the moment, barely comprehend. But it's properly fascinating. The, 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 and the turning point, I know, sorry, I'm going to jump in with another question, but the, the, the turning point that we see after 2026, or, you know, you're expecting at that point, do you think that will be commensurate with the, the Great Depression in terms of size and, 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 and effect? Or is there something else to say that it will be big, but not quite as big? I mean, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure is probably the honest answer. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it tends to be the case that the bigger the boom, the bigger the bus. And I'm expecting the boom to be pretty significant. Right. Having said all that, um, the, one of the reasons why, at least in terms of price, you might not, or in terms of the average price or an index, you might not see a major kind of significant downturn, uh, at least in the property market, is um, the, the speed and scale of government intervention. Or if you're somehow distracted from panicking and selling all your dumping all your property into the market at once, which is kind of what really collapses the market. Um, and, you know, and I mentioned, you know, the in the upside of the Kondratiev wave, um, and that brings with it a lot of geopolitical tension. And ultimately, you know, that tension can sometimes or quite often spills over into war. And war can be one of those factors which really distracts people from the severest kind of panic out of the real estate crash mm. and so you know and also to some extent i mean if if um you know there's a lot of investment in things and stimulus that goes on that accompanying that that can be relatively it, it might make a downturn quite sharp but very short for example so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm i'm kind of i don't i'm i think time will tell i think it'll be easier to make a more precise forecast in the next few years. At the moment, that's kind of one of the hypotheses that I'm holding. But the main one is that if you have a major boom, you get a major uh, crisis. And if if we have another roaring 20s, um, as we did in the 1920s, then the, uh, the downturn could be pretty significant. Well, we're definitely going to have you on before then, so <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, 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 get, we'll get an update. Um, 
I mean, I'd hope. So, yeah, definitely. So, brilliant stuff, Akil. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So, just to, just to round things off, um, what have you got in terms of media picks? And, and if you want a little moment to think, uh, we, we can go to Tim and then come back to you. Uh, I'm going to go with mine because it's not particularly highbrow and it's not particularly good and it's no recommendation <laughs> to other people. Well, it's <laughs> a recommendation <laughs> to me. <laughs> well, Tim's ears so, are pricked up. So, um, well, you know, because I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm writing my book. I'm trying to kind of capture the mood of certain episodes in history when you've had, um, you know, particular phase of the cycle. And at the moment, I'm looking at the late 80s, which was, you know, the, the real end of the age mm. of greed. And so on. So I've been watching and it's been great because I've been watching kind of trashy films from my youth. And it's been great for, to bring me, take me back to my childhood. So the one that I watched most recently is this film called The Secret of My Success. Ah, Michael, Michael J. J. Fox. That's the Michael one. J. Fox sex romp. That's the one. That's the one. And it, it's got, you know, it has a lot of little details. It's, it's of wonderfully, it. it's, it's, it's gorgeously 80s. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the music, the, the, the dress, the, the, you know, and it, he's working in this, um, you know, massive conglomerate where, you know, it had this sort of fashion for companies basically buying each other and, you know, they, there was no kind of centralized sort of purpose. They were just doing bits of everything. In terms, uh, in terms of the soundtrack, I'm thinking it must, it must be a synthesizer being hit by a saxophone. That sort of thing, exactly, exactly. And uh, there's also 80s style nudity, which you don't, you know, you don't see that so much of that these days. And big hair. And big hair. This is, and you know, Michael J. J. Fox at the time, looking like a, the eternal youth. Um, always a bit of teenage angst in his performances, which was also very relatable to it. He was like an 80s Jack Lemmon, wasn't he? Exactly. I think about it. Yeah. Talking yeah. talking of nudity in films, very I only very recently saw Basic Instinct. And I know that's that's quite quite that a was shock. quite a shocker at the time. <laughs> it was a, but actually if you watch it again today, the amount of nudity in it is really shocking. And the extent yeah. of it is like, whoa, you just don't see that anymore um, for obvious reasons. Well, I don't see it because I can't get close enough to the screen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a brilliant call, Akil. Belter, it's a belter. Yeah. Um, so, Tim. I've got two this week. Um, the first is a book I haven't read, but very much want to read by James Paulos called Human Forever, The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. So I heard this discussed on um, a, a video podcast with um, the Babylon Bee, which is one of my new new favorite channels, um, which is a Christian-based um, comedy uh, platform, which might sound like a contradiction in terms, but it's very, very good and very, very funny. Um, and Human Forever, I'll give you the synopsis just from the, from the, from the site itself, which is humanforever.us. Um, in a scorching, searching guide to saving our souls from the digital apocalypse, James Paulos shows how the swarm of programs and devices unleashed by our leaders has transformed our lives and defied our dreams, throwing the future into terrifying doubt. Rising above the din of the discourse, he reveals how the first generation of the digital age can retake control of our technology by restoring our full humanity and how their parents must save them from the new cyborg system bent on ensuring they never come of age. How interesting does that sound? Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, Basically, our um, our smartphones are are, are demonic. Is this the, the synopsis? So that's the first one, and I haven't read it, but I, I very much intend to. The second one is actually just a, a quick link to the obituary of Rick Jones, who played a character called Yoffo on Finger Bobs, and he sadly died recently. 
And it, this is from The Telegraph, and it's called Rick Jones, presenter of Play School and Finger Bobs, who later revealed the grown-up capers going on behind the scenes. Oh, wow. And this is, this is quite the funniest thing I think I've read um, in some time. And I'm just going to give you some, some, some very brief excerpts from this obit. Um, according to Jones, however, presenters were often caught in flagrante in the dressing rooms of Television <laughs> Centre, and they enjoyed arranging the show's toy characters in Kama Sutra poses before <laughs> filming began. Hamble the plastic doll being a particular target. We hated her, Jones recalled. If you want to go through the archives, you'll probably find little Ted in a compromising position with Hamble in several episodes. Sometimes you'd be half an hour into filming and you'd hear, cut! And the producer would shout, bloody Hamble, she's at it again. <laughs> and this is just the funniest thing I think I've read. Actually, it's maybe the funniest thing I've ever read. Uh, here's another one. Jones recalled returning to Television Center on one occasion in a trio of chauffeur-driven cars after he and some other presenters had filmed a pilot for another children's show. Quote, I tumbled out of my limo, obviously having been in flagrante delicto with whoever the girl presenter was. I looked back and another presenter was doing exactly the same from his car, this time with a guy. And the same was happening in the car behind that, too. And then the last one I'll, I'll just leave with you is um, Finger Bobs regularly appears on a list of the best children's series ever. But Jones found it such hard work, quote, scooting around under tables with one's fingers up little animals' bums, <laughs> that he was literally always stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Moreover, he was so badly paid that during the weeks he was not narrating the adventures of Flash the Tortoise, he kept himself busy doing voiceover work on foreign pornographic films. I'd even, quote, I'd even have to do the grunts. It was very embarrassing, but it was 400 quid for a morning's work. <laughs> I even had to do the grunts. As... <laughs> At the end of the series, I'm oh, sorry, I realised I'm now giving the whole, the whole, uh, the whole um, piece away. At the end of the series, Jones, deciding that enough was enough, ceremonially drowned Finger Mouse in a cup of cold coffee. <laughs> Jones was eventually fired by the BBC in 1973, after a fan sent him two cannabis spliffs, which landed on the desk of the head of play school, Cynthia Felgate. Quote, I knew the writing was on the wall, said Jones. So I gave her one and took the other. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, I don't know how I can top that. So I'm not going to try. So I just got to say, Akil, it's an absolute pleasure. So interesting to hear what you've got to say about the cycles and really looking forward to the book. And, um, you know, we hope to have you back very soon. Thanks very much. Happy to come back anytime. And just to remind people where they can find your um, your research and your yes. Twitter handle. Uh, so my Twitter handle is Akil G. Patel. Uh, and I, we mentioned the um, uh, my business. So it's called Property Share Market Economics. And uh, it's www.propertysharemarketeconomics.com. And you can, um, you know, there's all the free stuff to download and stuff. You don't, you don't have to be a subscriber immediately. So take advantage of all that. Brilliant stuff. Once again, thank you, Akil. And um, yeah, all the very best. And we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.